this morning talking to Daniel DeSalvo of the Manhattan Institute about a topic that, believe it or not, has been kind of near and dear to my heart, which is pension reform. I often talk about it, generally talking about it in terms of teacher pensions, because, and I often say it's just an unsustainable uh, way to promise benefits to people, unless you know you've got a growing uh, return on your investment and a growing pool of people. But you and your colleague, Jordan McGillis, have a paper out recently uh, about uh, big city pensions, which is another hugely looming problem, I think. And what can what's happening right now in a lot of cities in terms of they promise more than they can pay and it's and it's costing in really painful ways. So catch me up on what you guys did with this paper and what your findings were. Oh, oh well, again, thanks for having me on the yeah, show. Thanks for being my, here. My pleasure to be with you. Um, you know, what Jordan and I did in this paper was we just wanted to look, you know, at uh at pensions in big cities. And now we really just took the 10 largest cities in the United States by population, um, which ends up being a big slice of the country um, yeah. in terms of the country's total population. So clearly these cities are important for the nation's economic health. If you think even about the larger metro areas in which, um, you know, these cities are embedded. So, you know, I'm from New York City, and as we were joking before the show, uh, you know, we're very parochial in New York. So we think New York's the center of the universe. But New York City matters not just for New York City, but for Westchester County to the north, for Long Island, for parts of New Jersey that are really connected economically to to the city. So if we think about the cities as important, think about the broader cities. And really what we're getting at in this paper was to think, well, where are pensions have a little bit been off out of the headlines and over the course of the pandemic? And, you know, where do things stand with pension finance? And what are those implications for the city? And what we've really found was that, you know, especially some of the stock market fall in 2022, for example, sure. really wiped out a lot of the gains that pensions had. Now, we can go into the details of how public employee pensions in state and local government function, but the basic issue, to put it technically, is they're kind of a pro-cyclical policy, meaning government employers have to put in more money to these funds when they can least afford it when there's a kind of economic downturn. And with, this is coming at a time, you know, with inflationary pressures and other things where cities are under lots of pressures, especially in, in the wake of the pandemic from the work from home revolution, right? So. That's putting a lot of pressure on city budgets. And now our analysis is that these cities are also facing this bigger um, burden of paying for their pensions. And this is threatening to set off a bigger cycle that, uh, in a phrase that's the, in the title of the report, an urban doom loop. Meaning right. you end up with fewer people, fewer tax revenue, and the, it just becomes a kind of downward spiral um, for inner cities. Yeah, so essentially... What it does is it takes a big chunk of the budget and makes it committed before you do anything else, right? So you've already promised these people that 25 to 30 years after they start working, they're going to have a pretty generous benefits. And I know within the realm of teachers, when they can't afford like a pay increase, they'll say, oh, but we're going to, you know, <laughs> we're going to give you a great retirement benefit down the road. And they make these promises that do in fact kick the can down the road. And then when it, uh, when it, economic downturns, you take a city like Chicago, where everyone's leaving, and the, there's all this budgetary pressure, and a big chunk of the budget is already committed. There's nothing you can do about it, essentially, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, the basic functions of a, a public 
defined benefit pension is you define the benefit, which is typically some percentage of what's called the final average salary. And then, a, you know, an employee works over the course of their uh, working years, their final average salary over the last three to five years. And you say, well, we're going to replace that amount of income, you know, for the rest of your life. So to take round simple numbers, your final average salary is $100,000 and your the replacement value, the defined benefit pension is 60% of that. So you're going to get $60,000 a year in perpetuity until until death do you part with your pension. Yeah. Um, so now the way that that's financed is over the course of a worker's life or their of course of their employment is they contribute to a fund out of their paycheck as well as their employer contributes. Now, in some cases in the public sector, both the employee portion and the employer portion is picked up by the employer. Nonetheless, then those funds are then invested. And in theory, the savings of those funds plus the investment returns will come back to cover that commitment for the rest of the worker's life. Now, the issue here is that as you put it in some sense, states and city governments, these big city governments that we studied are in a sense budgeting more money, but deciding less because they've already made a pre-commitment to to financing their pension. So we look at the percentage of say total city revenues that are eaten up by pensions. Now this varies, you could say from the low end of eight or 9% of the budget to say 20% or more uh, of the available revenues that the city has to commit, which means you look at the total size of the budget, 20% or 15% cut it off, off the table. Gone. Yeah. And if that percentage rises, and again, cities do are mostly pension policies controlled by state governments. So cities can't really just say, well, sorry, we'd sorry, we'd like <laughs> to change the deal uh, yeah. and give people less in retirement or, you know, offer a different, <clears throat> they have to wait for the state government to act. So what we've seen is as investment returns became lower over the course of last year. Yeah. Um, and possibly and more, going into a recession this year. So yeah, not going to so turn around anytime soon. Retiring because we have a big baby, you could say the baby boom bubble of retirements. Right. Um, is all a number of these factors, which we go through in the report, are all increasing this percentage that most cities have to pay towards their pension, which means they can't pay for it for something else. Right. So when you uh, think they need to put new pl- more police officers on the street or fight crime harder, just know that there's less money to do so because they're paying the retired police officers. That's right. So one of the things we find in the report is this what's sometimes called the crowd out effect, which is exactly what you just said, which is we're having to pay more for the retired police officers, meaning the policing and public safety services we uh, received yesterday. in the past, <laughs> we've already consumed. And that's constraining us from hiring more police in the present. And in a number of the cities we studied, most notably Chicago, Los Angeles, and a few others, Philadelphia, we really see this um, correlation between increased pension uh, spending and decreased hiring of police. So in some sense, you know, you could say perhaps a little glibly, pensions have already defunded the police in some of these cities. That's right. But don't the police unions still bargain hard to not uh, change any of the terms of their pension benefits? Well, of course, freak out. I mean, teachers, it's like a third rail. 
Yeah, well, two important things. Most cities in most places in the country's pensions are not a subject of collective bargaining. Okay. They are set by state law. Now, to the extent the unions are involved, which they are, it's really at the level of lobbying and defending the current system from any change, right? They're really, um, uh, you could say the, the politics that they engage in is usually one of blocking, meaning we don't want to see any change in the yeah. existing pension formulas. But that's usually lobbying at the level of the state legislature, not in collective bargaining. However, any increase in employment and police unions and teachers unions want to increase the number of police officers and teachers and any increase in salary obviously affects the amount of spending on pensions, right? So pensions are so deeply woven into state and local government and their human capital, because if you hire more police officers, you're going to have more, pe more people up for pension benefits. If uh, you, I, I don't know why it's so hard for folks to understand this, but yes. If you increase salary in collective bargaining, that's going to increase the final average salary of workers in the future. And that's going to increase the amount you must spend on pension. So in effect, any salary increase is a kind of pension benefit increase, you could say, going forward. And then at some time, I don't know when or why, I want to say it was in the 80s, it was determined that it'd be okay to fund just 80% of what you owe, right? Like pension funds have been increasingly get, uh, accumulating these like unfunded portions of what they do, in fact, owe, but it's unfunded because... Uh, and then all of a sudden, just 80% funded sounded pretty safe. And so we have big, big gaps, like Illinois had big, big gaps. It's also affected their politics, right? This yeah. pension stuff and taxes. And I just don't, it's kind of a, with all due respect to your great paper on urban doom loop, it's kind of a boring topic. I think it's doesn't, it's not sexy down the, in the state capitals, right? And you don't sit around at a cocktail party and talk about pensions, but in fact, it's like a quiet driver of so many things. I think the quiet driver of so many things is exactly the right way to phrase it. And I concede that it is a dry topic and it's often one discussed unless you are a public employee and you are yeah. in a defined uh, benefit pension scheme, then you probably know all these things like unfunded liability sure. and the discount rate and these technical actuarial terms in which pensions are discussed. But if you're not, if you're in, for most people in the private sector today who are not in public employment, you these things are completely foreign. But if you take a city like Chicago, which is really it, probably the worst off of all the cities that we studied, you know, Chicago just, you know, six or seven years ago before the pandemic raised property taxes by the tune of about $50 million a year. But none of those tax increases went to pay for anything new. They all went to pay for police and fire pensions. Oh, so gosh. this is this thing that's often hard for the public to understand. Well, we're having tax increases and we're having diminished services, but the budget keeps growing. What explains yeah. that? And that the real, you could say, missing key is this unfunded liability for pensions um, going back into the past. But I'll, I'll yeah. leave it. There. But I mean, you know, uh, and then what happens to people in Illinois is they say, we're going to move. <laughs> we're going to move to somewhere else, right? And they're losing uh, residents at a high rate, which is just further hurting their body. So, like, they're in this uh, uh, statewide doom loop. I mean, they're in this spiral, downward spiral. And they, 
they won't, you know, they have so many bills that they can't pay. I think they were sending IOUs for lottery winners. I mean, they, they can't. And in a lot of cases, so you mentioned the private sector, people not getting this. That's because the private sector, when my grandfather was alive, a lot of those private companies had defined benefit pensions where you retired and the company air quotes took care of you till the day you died. But the private sector has realized that that's folly, right? And they've switched over to what most of us have, 401k or defined contribution. Why has the public sector been so slow to follow? Well, there's important differences between public and private sector employment. Um, and obviously the issue of the strength of public employee unions, which is much stronger in the public sector than the private sector. <laughs> but there's some important differences Partly because you could say, let's take this one basic one, which is, in general, private sector employment pays better. Yeah. Now, it, but what public sector employment does is it has better benefits. Right. So if you look at many jobs, you know, becoming a police officer, for instance, the pay is not enormous. The benefits are very good, but you've got to stay in that yeah. position for a number of years. Right. And so you could take, you know, consider police officers. It's a a good job and a route to the middle class, especially for people who probably have a terminal educational attainment of a high school diploma. Yeah. Um, but if you're a police officer who's 35, right, and you want to change jobs, you have not acquired a set of skills that are easily transferable to the private sector market. So right. this means that you could say economists use this word, it's stickier. Public sector employment is stickier. People tend to stay in their jobs longer, right? And they don't, and many jobs don't have commensurate jobs in the private sector they can move to, which makes those retirement benefits, the, the, the in a sense, the guarantee of those pension benefits even more valuable than the dollar signs attached to them. And it makes it much harder to transition out of them. That's not to say, however, that, you know, in the wake of the Great Recession, 2000, about a decade ago, many states did adopt reforms that allow right. for more defined contribution options. And I think you know, we talk about this a little bit in the report in our recommendations, expanding those options is a good thing. And, um, you know, myself as a public employee, public university professor in New York, it's interesting that we we public university professors have long enjoyed a defined contribution option nice. um, that you can have it managed by TIA craft or you can be right. part of the defined benefit system. Everyone is not going to take that option, but to the extent that even a, a minority and a small percentage elect that option, it reduces the pressure on yeah. the government employer. Yeah, Florida does it with their teachers. You can pick to find contribution to find benefit. It's kind of based on your career plans. If you think you might move around or you think you might not be a teacher forever, you should go to find contribution for sure. Now I think they're trying to nudge people to define contribution, but it's it was initially very agnostic. The orange side of the website, the blue side of the website, you could pick. But um, you know, I used to work for the federal government and the federal government before I got there in the early 2000s, made a major shift from defined benefit to defined contribution. And they just kind of phased it in where you got a smaller and smaller and smaller pension benefit. One day, I suppose I'll get $100 a month. I'll probably forget where it came from, but one day I'll get some small, but, but most of it and all new people went into 
um, the defined contribution side of it. So it can be done. And I thought maybe Houston had redone theirs a little bit, or some of these cities had been working on that. Uh, but some still, like overall, the idea seems foreign to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly upsides. We, in our paper, do not study for teachers for the most part, uh, <clears> with <throat> the exception of New York City, because teachers, we studied city governments. Right. And in most places, teachers and education employees are employed by separate school districts from the municipal government. Uh, New York City is a bit different because it has a thing called mayoral control. Mm. But even if we stick with teachers and think about the defined contribution option, especially for women, obviously women predominate in K-12 education, where there are likely to be more breaks in employment for, you know, giving birth to children and early childhood years or potentially moving. The problem Mm -hmm. is the defined benefit system is not kind to people who have breaks in their employment history, which means it's not generally that kind, you know, to to many women and female teachers, whereas the defined contribution plans, to the extent that they're portable, they don't, you know, they're much more friendly to being, you can move and change school districts. You can take, you know, a certain amount of time off. You could say for early childhood years, and you're still going to be accumulating, um, you know, retirement savings. So your recommendations then are to at least give the option of going with the traditional defined benefit or like, so you're not saying that uh, cities should, um, sort of convince their state governments to get rid of defined benefit, rather just give new employees the option of joining one or the other. Yeah, I think well that that proposal would seem to be you know too radical to be a yeah. kind of non-starter. But I think you're, what you're trying to alleviate is these intense budget pressures yeah. that are afflicting cities now. And how could you do that? Is by giving some employees this option. Some will take it. Many will not. That's fine. But that's going to in a sense, it's a, it's a release valve. Um, and it's going to be good for certain kinds of employees who might move if their spouse gets employed yeah. somewhere else. Um, the other thing to note is that when it comes to pension reform, legally, constitutionally, and contractually, it's very difficult to do any, you certainly can't really do anything about people who are already retired and receiving their benefits. Sure. We've seen that even through the bankruptcies in Detroit, Stockton, Puerto Rico, it is very hard politically and legally and probably morally too to reduce people's in fixed income in retirement. We really don't want to do that. No, of course <laughs> not. Even though I get a month, the they're relying on that and all of a sudden they get less. And they don't have an opportunity to go back to work. It's also very hard to do anything about current employees, people already on the job. So really when we're talking about pension reform, it's really coming at the front end of new hires. We adopt a reform and that's going to apply to people, you could say, what public employees call the unborn, people who haven't yet become uh, public employees yet. Right. Or you also mentioned as another recommendation that there are things that could be done within the existing pension system. One thing that, as you described, these uh, public defined benefit systems is you get your $60,000 till the day you die. Well, people are fortunately living longer. Right. And this idea, well, for teachers, the retirement, typical retirement age is 55, which is in the rear view for me. And I seem to still be able to work every day. Right. So these sort of old actuarial systems where you retire when you're 55 and you make it to your 75, uh, those could be updated. 
Yeah, I mean, we talk about that, those kind of things, changing the retirement age yeah. um, is an important, changing how you calculate the final average salary. So just to give an example, New York State, in the wake of the Great Recession, like other states, increased the retirement age um, from just by, you know, two years to 63. Sure. Um, and the New York City has probably saved about seven billion over the last ten years as a result of that and other changes to the system. So these small, what are seemingly small tweaks, can add up to you know substantial savings. And you know the good thing is, as you mentioned, people are living longer. That's great. Great However, news. <laughs> you know, as we you could see, is the protest recently in France over this question. I was right? going to ask you about that. Mm-hmm. You know, in the pension reform proposed by Bloomberg uh, in in you know 2012 he had pushed for 65 as the oh. as the retirement age to receive full benefits you could retire earlier you just wouldn't get the full amount um but that was whittled down to 63 as the age in legislative bargaining and in Albany but again that could be revisited and maybe you push sure. it just one more year up given that life expectancy is approaching 80 now for men and women in the country. Um, and that would, again, slowly and incrementally over time save money. Yeah. I mean, we are getting into a situation in Missouri, but I think in other States with teachers because they retire at 55. Now we're having to change our laws so that a teacher drawing a benefit a retirement benefit, a pension benefit, can go back to work at some portion of their original salary or for a certain Mm -hmm. number of years or whatever. And it's like, well, or they could have kept working, right? And started getting their pension later. Why are we giving them their pension and having them go back and work? Uh, I think that that is backwards logic. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, what I think is my biggest takeaway from all of this, that I would like people to understand is that, um, yeah, municipal budgets are complicated, but we have committed a lot of our city's budgets to this issue. And in St. Louis, where crime is is terrifying, I mean, we've just like we keep hitting number one or number two now. Uh, there's there's limited things that we can do about it because we have this very same problem where we have overcommitted budgets and dwindling population, and we're I think are going to have to get folks used to the idea that um, we can't keep making these promises or our streets are going to get more dangerous, basically, right? Yeah, I think the big thing here is to just see that the the budgetary pressure this puts on current services, meaning you end up as a taxpayer or resident, the quality of life of your city is impacted by by this in the sense that, you know, you're not able to provide trash collection as many days a week. You're not able to have as many police officers uh, walking the beat. You're not as you're not able to have as much fire protection as you previously enjoyed. And those things make cities more or less attractive as, you know, places to live and do business. So this is sort of as you put it earlier in our conversation you know, this background factor that's not not well understood, but it's this background driver of, you could say, quality of life of our cities. So are you optimistic or pessimistic about the 10 cities you studied uh, being willing to make these changes? 
Well, I think it's really, really depends. I think some of the cities are, are better positioned than others. Um, you know, Chicago is in very poor condition uh, on this score. Um, and certainly the the uh, its recent mayoral election um, does not bode well for, for shoring up its, its pension and public debt. New York is probably in better shape um, than than elsewhere. It's enacted, you know, serious reforms. Um, that's not to say that it isn't a concern. Some of the work from home revolution, you know, is going to be impactful for New York City's property tax mark, uh, commercial yeah. real estate market. And that's important. Oh, yeah. But even there, New York is a, probably a bit more of an outlier than some other cities such as, you know, Los Angeles or San Diego or something like that, that are yeah. more car driven cities. Well, it's a great paper, uh, Big City Pensions and the Urban Doom Loop. And I really appreciate you coming on to talk about it. My pleasure. Mm-hmm.